0: My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I'm so excited that you're here with us this morning. And I'm really excited because we're jumping into the next... Uh, section of our study in the Three Kings. We've been working through the stories of Saul over the last number of weeks, and today uh, we don't have a clean break to moving into the life of David because David and Saul are very much intertwined in their stories as we go forward. But we're really going to take some time here to look at David for the next 11 weeks. I'd love to invite you to be here to hear these stories of how King David uh, has made an impact on the people of God throughout history. King David... He's kind of a big deal. I don't know if you know that or not, but he's kind of a big deal, such a big deal that if you go to Italy, you're going to see all kinds of Renaissance uh, sculptures dedicated to this man. As you can see here on the left is him with a wonderful harp and on, he's, he has less on the other side. Um, the, the question that I think is important for us to wrestle with is, who is David? And the question is a good one because David is not very easy to sum up. David is a complicated character. David is the kind of man that really comes across as feeling real as a character. While I was preparing this week, I was trying to write down all the things I thought about King David based on what we know of him from the scripture, and I came up with a pretty big list. He's a king, a shepherd, a warrior, a musician, a sheriff, a friend, a poet, a songwriter, a giant slayer, an enemy conqueror, a city planner, a father, a husband, adulterer, and a murderer. If that sounds like an interesting character, you're right. He's a very complex man. And over the next 11 weeks, we're really going to see all of the things that are laid out in David's life for us in the Scripture. In fact, there was a, there was a quote that I came across uh, in my studies about David and about David's stories that we find here in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel uh, in particular. And here, here's what it said. It said, At fir- it is, first, a literary masterpiece Probably the greatest single narrative representation in antiquity of a human life evolving by slow stages through time, shaped and altered by the pressures of political life, public institution, family, the impulses of body and spirit, and the eventual sad decay of the flesh. What we see here in the life of David that's laid out for us in the scripture is the story of a man. Uh, Although that story does not start with his birth, it's pretty close. We're going to be introduced to him today in the text, and he's a very young man at this point, and we follow his story all the way until the end of his life, Uh, and there are twists and turns along the way, certainly. Just to remind you where we are in the story, in case you weren't with us last week or in case you have a very short memory, uh, we last week wrapped up the rejection of Saul. Saul went to battle with clear instructions against the Amalekites, which was to wipe them out including all of their livestock, and to kill the king. And instead, Saul organized a situation where it made him look better. He brought back trophies. He brought back all the best of their cattle and all the best of the loot, and he brought back the king as a trophy to hold on to. And because of that, at the the end of kind of a long series of events in his life, God says, Saul is not the man for the job. I'm removing my blessing from Saul, and I'm moving on. And it's at that moment that we're introduced into this next chapter, chapter 16 in, verse, uh, in 1 Samuel. If you're following along in the text, you can go ahead and open there right now. We're going to work our way through the whole chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. The text will be up here on the screen, and you can follow along in that way. So we open chapter 16 with sad Samuel. Samuel is depressed we know it because of what God says to him in the very first verse of the chapter but we have Saul Samuel who is sad. And you might ask why is Samuel so sad? Well Samuel is an old man, he's at the end of his life and as he looks back at what this has all come to, he's filled with regret. He looks back and he sees that his ministry has not been the kind of ministry he hoped it would be. In fact, the people have rejected him and asked for a king. And when he was given the responsibility of selecting this king under God's leadership and mentoring him, that all went wrong. And his sons, which would hopefully keep up the tradition of keeping this ministry alive, they're total losers. And nobody wants to follow them. Part of that was the reason that they went with a king. And now that king, Saul, has been completely rejected. Where does this leave Israel is a real question. But I think what Samuel's wrestling with is, where does this leave me? What is my legacy? How did it all come to this? And God sees Samuel in his sadness, and he says this to them. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as the king over Israel? He sees Samuel in his distress in his regret in his sadness and he doesn't he doesn't brush it aside instead he comes at him and says, "Okay, you've had enough time now. It's time to move on. How long are you going to sit here and mope? How long are you going to look back on your life of regret? How long are you going to try to control this situation and make it about you? Are we done?" It really begs the question that I think all of us has to re- have to wrestle with. What do I do when life didn't end up where I thought it would? Because that's what is happening to Samuel right here. Samuel's dejected and he's, he's concerned about his legacy because everything he hoped and planned for his life didn't go the way that he wanted it to go. And maybe rightfully so. He's really introspective about that. He's sad about that. But it's part of the question that you have to ask. Maybe you're you're not at the end of your life like Samuel was looking back in regret. Maybe you're right in the middle of it. Maybe you're just getting started. But the reality is for every one of us, we have to deal with this question. What do I do when life doesn't go the way that I hoped? Maybe you didn't get the job you wanted. Maybe you lost the job that you thought was the one you needed. Maybe you got a health diagnosis. Maybe your spouse has left. There's a lot of things that don't go the way that we planned and we're really challenged in this moment. Just like Samuel, what are you going to do now? And I love God's instruction. He says, "How long are you going to sit here and mope about this, Samuel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way." Now, that is not a typical like let's get to work, but for Samuel, the prophet, this is let's get to work. I got a job to do. Fill your horn with oil And be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Here's the thing that I love about this address that God gives to Samuel. He says, I know this hasn't went the way that you wanted wanted it to go, but this wasn't about you to begin with. It's about me and my mission and my plans. And the question that he's asking Samuel right here is, are you going to participate in my ongoing mission or do I need to push you aside too to find someone else? And Samuel responds exactly the way you'd want to respond. He jumps right up and he fills his horn with oil. It's a challenge that we have in that same situation. How long are you going to make this about me? I have a mission in the world, I'm doing good things. Are you going to participate alongside me? Samuel opts to get moving. He says he's going to send him off to Bethlehem. What do we know about Bethlehem? Well, here's a picture of Bethlehem today. Uh, Bethlehem is a modern city. There's about 25,000 people that live in Bethlehem. It's a city in Palestine right now. Uh, This is not the most modern part of the city. This is actually part of the old city that they've excavated, and you can see there. Bethlehem uh, is a place that is only five or six miles south of Jerusalem, but at the time that we're talking about, there would have been very little in this place except for rolling fields in which lots and lots of sheep were raised. In fact, Jerusalem itself isn't even in Israeli hands at this point. The Israelites do not own Jerusalem. Their enemies are still there in a fort. But right outside of town, there's a man named Jesse. And Samuel's sent to go meet him there. Now Samuel, he's a very practical and pragmatic man. He immediately begins to do the math. And here's what he says. How can I go? Because if Saul hears about this, he's gonna kill me. If Saul hears I'm going to anoint another guy, I'm in big trouble here. When I left Saul and he learned that you had rejected him, he was not in a good headspace. I don't anticipate if he hears that I'm already in the process of finding a new king, he's going to respond, well, what do I do? Don't worry, God's got it figured out. Here's what he says. I want you to take a heifer with you, and you go to them and you say, come to the sacrifice of the Lord. And then you invite Jesse when you get there to the sacrifice, and then I'll show you what to do. You're going to anoint for me the one that I indicate. He's got a whole plan. You're going to go to town. You're going to bring an animal. You're going to do a sacrifice. If you remember, because Jerusalem is not part of the center of worship, there is no temple for sacrifices. Part of Samuel's job was to roam the countryside, going from town to town to region to region, helping them worship God through things like this, sacrifice. So it's a great cover. You go into town. You hold a sacrifice. You invite Jesse to come. So Samuel did what the Lord said. He arrived at Bethlehem and the elders of town, this is great. The elders see Samuel arriving and they're in a little bit of a panic. They tremble when they meet him. And they ask, do you come in peace? We don't have a lot of uh, evidence of how the people of the land felt about Samuel, but this should give us a little picture into it. They were very nervous that this is when there's a knock on your door at 3 a.m. and the police are at the door. This can't be good. You wouldn't be here randomly at 3 a.m. So when the the prophet of the Lord shows up in town unannounced, they're all real nervous. What did we do wrong? He says, no, no, no. I've come in peace. I've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. What does it look like to consecrate themselves? They would have went and ritually washed. They would have taken essentially a bath and got new clothes and then they would arrive at a high place near town, usually at the, on the top of a hill nearby, they would have a place where they would hold a sacrifice and they bring this animal to have the sacrifice. And as Samuel is waiting, Jesse and the boys begin to arrive. And as would have been customary, Jesse, the old man, the dad, he brings the oldest boy with him first. When they arrived, Samuel sees Elab. A a lab. I think that's how you say it? And he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. This has got to be the guy. Look at him. He's tall. He's handsome, right? He's using the same equation that he used when he picked Saul. This has got to be him. Look at him. He's the oldest. He's the firstborn. This must be the one you're looking for. And God immediately corrects Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height. For I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Some translations say the Lord looks from the heart. Either way, I think it connotates the exact same thing. Both this this guy, the firstborn, fits the mold of Saul, the one you already picked. He's tall and he's handsome. He's not the one I'm interested in. I rejected the tall and handsome one. I'm looking for the heart. I'm looking for... something different, something you can't see. It says that Jesse had seven sons that pass in front of Samuel, one after another. Keep in mind, Samuel has not told them why he's here at this point. It has to be a very strange parade. You got any other boys around here? Bring them on out. I want to get a good look at these guys one at a time as they're going by. It's probably a little awkward. I don't know what is happening here. I'm also guessing Jesse's pretty smart and he's starting to put two and two together at this point. There's something significant happening. And he gets to the end of the line and he says, "Uh, I don't know, he's not here. God didn't pick any of these guys. Do you have any other sons? He says, yes, I, I do have another one. He's the youngest, but he's out tending the sheep. At the last minute, remember Samuel, you showed up unannounced and told us we had to pull this whole thing together. Somebody had to stay out there in the field with the sheep. We left the youngest one. He's the least important. He's the smallest. He doesn't matter. He's out there. Samuel says, go get him. We're not going to get started until he arrives. I'm I'm just trying to imagine this scenario. There's whispering in the background. Jesse's telling the boys, like, somebody's got to go get him. I don't know. One of you has to stay out there with him. I, I don't know. Don't let the sheep get away. Just get David back here. He's not joking around. He said he's not starting until he's here. And so they send him off. And pretty soon, David comes in. I love this. Because David, now, I'm just imagining, I'm guessing that those fields were not right next door. There's probably a little bit of time involved while they're all kind of standing around making small talk about the weather. So how's profiting been going, Samuel? Well, you know. Now here comes David, finally. 30 minutes passes. David comes walking up. So he sent and he had him brought in and he was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. I love this. God's like, don't you dare look at how handsome that guy is. And then the first thing he says when he walks up, boy, was he a looker. <laughs> here he comes. Now it uses some weird language here. Ruddy, this isn't exactly a word I'm guessing you use all the time in your day-to-day language. Ruddy means that he was uh, reddish in his appearance. He had a healthy reddish. Essentially what it comes down to is that most of the people living in Palestine during this time would have been short, olive-skinned, dark-haired, dark dark eyes. And when David rolls up, he's probably short because he's young, but he he looks different. He has a reddish, healthy glow, and he has, some translations say he has piercing eyes, which I take to mean he probably had blue or green eyes, which would have been very unusual. And as soon as he walks up, he hears from the Lord, This is the one. After all, he's a striking Mediterranean man with a healthy reddish glow and piercing eyes. Um, Did something happen up there? So Samuel, he takes the horn of oil and he anoints him there in the presence of the brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Now once again, the text, there's a few things that the text does not fill us in in. First, first of all, it never tells us if Samuel tells Jesse and the boys what he's doing. And there's part of me that believes, because the text doesn't say it, that it's a little bit of a mystery, that they're all kind of trying to fill in the blanks. It was not unusual. It was not just kings that would be anointed. Uh, You would anoint people for all kinds of special purposes, so there is a gap in the knowledge that they could be trying to fill in. We could also make a guess here that maybe Samuel's quietly letting the family in. Like, you guys got to keep this under your hat, but this whole thing went down with Saul. You wouldn't even believe it. He's in big trouble. God told me to come here. Maybe he fills them all in. We don't know. But we do know that right there in front of all of his brothers, the youngest, the one who is the most unique, the one that was cast aside is chosen by God for his purposes. I love this because it reflects the heart of God. In fact, I think this is a picture of God choosing Israel. Out of all the nations, he picks the smallest, the most unique, the one that stands out, the, no, the one no one else would have chosen. And he said, this is the people That I'm going to anoint for my purposes. He does the same thing here with David. And the moment it happens, it says that the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. This is a very common phrase to find in the text. In fact, I went back and did a search to find out when does this kind of stuff happen Before the kings started, we had judges in the land of Israel. The judges were essentially warrior uh, tribal leaders who would lead them to victory and then step back down. And here's the examples in Judges 3, Judges 6, Judges 14. As each of these men gets this responsibility to lead the people, the spirit of the Lord comes upon them. The spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The spirit of the Lord rushed on Samson. When Saul was named king, the spirit of God came on him in power. And it says that right here in this moment, this boy, we don't know how old he is, but we're gonna say 14 probably, young man. The spirit of the Lord descends on him in power because God's spirit empowers God's people to carry out God's mission. What he's giving to David is not something that David would be able, capable of carrying out on his own. And so God gives him an extra dose. The spirit of God descends on him in power so that he can carry it out. Saul was given the same ability, the spirit of God that came upon him, In the Old Testament, these are unique moments upon unique people for a unique purpose. Jesus, in the New Testament, says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This moment that was set aside for judges and kings in the old way under Israel is something that empowers all believers in the church era. And Jesus tells them, when I leave, I'm going to send you someone better than me, the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit descends on you in power, you will be empowered to carry out my mission. Every one of you in this room who has put your faith in Christ for your salvation is empowered with the same Holy Spirit that empowers a legend like King David. You've been given the Spirit of God. Now, I want to be clear because Saul had this same spirit and he was disobedient. Saul had this same spirit and he disobeyed God. This does not mean that you will be perfect. It does not mean that everything you do will be a rousing success. But what it does mean is that when your life and your purpose match up with God's mission in the world, you will have power to see it come to fruition. Now let's rest in what he's asked us to do. He's asked us to be his witnesses. That's the mission that he's laying out in front of us. Now there is in the Old Testament a consequence that comes with this special anointing that's been given to David. The spirit comes upon David, and as a result, the spirit of the Lord departed Saul. This is the second half of this chapter. This The story shifts gears a little bit. We have David chosen, and David is anointed, and the spirit of God comes on him, and then the next verse, well, what's going on with Saul? Well, that spirit departed Saul to go to David. And then we have something that, I mean, when, I, when I'm reading through it, Paul tells me, hey, I'm going to have you teach on uh, chapter 16. Ooh, David, that's so great. And then I get to this verse, and I was like, wait, what? The Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit of the Lord tormented him. And you go, wait, what? Why? Why does this part have to be in there? Couldn't we have just skipped this part? Because it's comp- what in the world is happening? God's. I can, I can deal with the Spirit of God descending on someone for a purpose in God's mission, it's a little harder for me to square up how does God send evil spirits to torment people? Well, I started doing a little legwork, and I I don't know that I can answer this question for us, but I think it can help us give us a little clarity. I'm gonna read you two quotes that I came across on this topic because I think it'll be helpful for us. The first one is, we just have to acknowledge something as we're reading stuff, especially like 1 Samuel. We're reading ancient Hebrew text. Hebrew as a language was essentially a dead language for over a thousand years, kept up just in Jewish scholarly circles. If you go to Israel now, most people speak Hebrew, but it's a resurrected language of Hebrew. Now, why do I say that? Well, because what it means is when we're translating 20, let's call it 3,000-year-old Hebrew... There, there is a little bit of wiggle room in exactly what those words mean. So let me, let me show you this here. This is what the quote I came across says. The Hebrew adjective ra. So if you look at the Hebrew text for evil spirit that's translated in your text, the two words are ra, ruah. That's what the Hebrew says. Now here's the issue with that. The Hebrew adjective ra, which is translated evil here, has a broad range of possible meanings, including the following, of bad quality, inferior, disagreeable, displeasing, vicious, harmful, bad, and evil. Uh, The translations that we have have chosen evil. The noun, ruah, spirit, also has a broad range, including wind, breath, disposition, temper, spirit. And if you notice, even in this one, there's a few dot, dot, dots in there because there's even more in there but these kind of get to the heart of it. So I'm not trying to let this verse off the hook because this verse says what we believe. God is sovereign over all things. God allows even the suffering of someone like Saul. But when it says that God sent an evil spirit, that is one way that the text can be interpreted out of the ancient Hebrew. Another way that you could interpret it that would be equally as valid is he sent him a... Uh, disagreeable temper or a disagreeable disposition. I can't say for sure which one of those interpretations is accurate. I I kind of have a way that I would lean in it, and it's mainly because of how they solve the problem. Because if God sends an evil spirit on you, I'm guessing the way that they solve it seems a little loose. Here's where we go. Here's the other thing that they they talk about in one of the other commentaries that came across. It says says this, just as the spirit was able to give the positive attributes of courage, charisma, insight, wisdom, and confidence, negative results could also be produced by spiritual influences. These would include fear, paranoia, indecisiveness, suspicion, and short-sightedness. So I just want you to inhabit for a second creatively in your mind Saul. He's been the king. He's had some success in his leadership. He's defeated enemies. He's done well. And then he's confronted by the prophet of God who says, not only did you mess up, not only did you disobey God, but God is moving on from you as king, and he's going to choose someone else. What does that do to you psychologically? What does that do to you in your heart? Well, I think we get a picture of it. Saul sitting in his chambers, anxious, depressed, worried, overwhelmed, paranoid, indecisive. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know where to turn. He doesn't know where this evil is going to come from. He doesn't know how he's going to be overthrown as king. He's suddenly painfully aware of the fact that he is absolutely incapable of leading God's people in the way that God needs them to. God has removed his spirit from Saul and in its place is an evil spirit, is a bad temperament, is an ill-shaped heart. In fact, there's there's a great quote from Watchman Nee that says, an unpeaceful mind cannot operate normally. I think that's what we see here in Saul. Saul's heart is overwhelmed with a lack of peace. So what is he going to do about it? He realizes he's in big trouble here. He's wrestling with the outcome and the the results of being disobedient to God and him removing his favor. Well, the good news for Saul is he's got some attendants in his court that give him advice. And here's what they say. Saul's attendants say to him, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord, Saul, command his servants to search for someone who can play the harp, or other translations will say the liar, and he'll play whenever the evil spirit or bad temperament or however, whichever translation fits here, it all applies, he'll play whenever this comes upon you, this feeling, and you'll feel better. This is where I lean. It feels to me like the translations that talk about bad temperament or ill feelings seem to fit better because their answer does not quite seem to rise to the occasion of an evil spirit that's somehow like tormenting him in this place because their answer is, We can just get a guy who will come play some music for you and everything will be great. To me, that sounds like a guy who's in a bad state of mind. This is a guy who's like really struggling with what's going on. Another one of the servants pipes up, and here's what the servants say I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp or the lyre. He's a brave man, he's a warrior. He speaks well. He's a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. He's a fine-looking man. There it is again. David must have been a looker. Everybody keeps making comment about it, right? Now, this begs the question to me as I read it, uh, is word starting to get out about David? Is is there starting to be an undercurrent, a whisper campaign about this guy who's going to be the next one? Because they seem really ready with the answer. Saul, you're really struggling. I have an answer. Let's find somebody with a harp. And immediately, I know somebody. He's the youngest son of a guy who lives in a nearby hill town who raises sheep. That just seems very convenient to me. We're, he's brave. He's a warrior. We're going to bring him in. Just so you know, the li- just what a liar is. Here's a picture of a modern version of a liar. Oh, I don't know how comforting this would be to you, but this is what they said. This will be the answer to the problem. This evil spirit that's tormenting you, this ill temper, this anxiety, this stress, this overwhelming feeling. We're gonna get this good looking dude to come in and play A little bit of that for you, and it's going to be great. It's one of the most ancient instruments that exists. In fact, the one that David played was probably, didn't have that piece across the top. It was probably a lot more rough than this. The earliest evidence we have is that they were made with turtle shells and pieces of brass, but it sounded a little bit like that. So they bring David in. Uh, Jesse gets word that David's going to go to uh, Saul. He's been called to the king. Now, Keep in mind They just had this impromptu party in town where the prophet either told them or mysteriously anointed this young boy, and then out of the blue, word comes to him that the king wants to talk with him. The king needs his skills. And it says that Jesse took a donkey, he loaded it with bread, a skin of wine, a young goat, gifts for the king, and he sends David off to Saul. And it says that David came to Saul and he entered his service and Saul liked him very much. David was a great guy to have around. Not only was he good company and he played a great liar, did I mention he was good looking? Apparently this is great. And he says not only does he make him his liar player, the one who comforts his heart when he's afflicted by his current circumstance, he becomes his armor bearer, which we don't typically have armor bearers this day day and age, but the king could not be bothered to be carrying a heavy sword and a shield and armor all the time. So the armor bearer would be with him all the time. He's his chief of staff, but his responsibility is to be the chief of the staff. You like that? Here you go. Okay. So David becomes his professional, handsome music player and the guy who's in charge of his weapons, and he keeps them nearby all the time. This is what Saul does. And it says, whenever the spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and he would play. And then relief would come to Saul and he would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. Gonna, this, is, this is where the text leaves us, right here at the end, where David is playing for Saul whenever he has a need. And I just want us to be in this moment for a second because... I'm going to go with the assumption that Samuel told Jesse and the boys and David what was going on. That, That he explained in a quiet way that Saul has lost the favor of Yahweh. And that God has sent him here to anoint the new king. Saul is painfully aware of his inadequacies and of his rejection by God. And David has had the Spirit of the Lord descend on him in power. There's one person in this story that is ill-equipped to lead. Not only is he ill-equipped, he has been disobedient to the point of being rejected by God. And the other person in the story is the one who has been chosen and the Spirit of the Lord has descended on him in power. And David, being given that gift, that responsibility chooses to serve. Now, you might argue, I don't know how much of an option he has. After all, Saul is going to prove himself. To, that paranoia, that ill temper, that, that lack of trust is going to become more and more of his way of leading. I don't know how much option David had. But here's what I do know. When someone does something for you begrudgingly, you feel it. You know it. When you've asked someone to help you, when you've asked someone to serve you, when you've asked someone to show up early for work when it wasn't their shift, and they don't want to, they're doing it begrudgingly, you can feel it. You don't want to be around that person. You feel bad about the fact that you even made them come there, or you're angry that they're giving you such attitude. Anybody ever felt this before? I have children. Sometimes I've felt it. Saul does not get that from David at all. In fact, when David walks in, he immediately is comforted by his presence. And David serves him in the way that he's needed. I would guess that David has a lot of skills. After all, his renown was known by attendance in the king's service. He's a warrior. He's a fine man. He can play music and he's good looking. Did we mention that? And when he comes in, the thing that he's been given responsibility for is to sit by at Saul's whim, and when Saul's cranky, come in and play some music for the guy. David doesn't complain. David doesn't buck against that servanthood. In fact, he apparently presents himself to Saul in such a way that he is winsome and a massive blessing to Saul. He is a conduit to the Spirit of God bringing blessing into a king who's been rejected and is trying his hardest to do it all his own. I want to, I think that there's a real danger when we read some of these Old Testament stories to immediate, next week we're going to do David and Goliath. And one of the easiest things to do is say, hey, you got big Goliaths in your life, how are you going to be like David and kill those Goliaths? I, I, I get real nervous about that. I think these are stories telling us about unique things that happened in history for a purpose. But in this case, I think there's an application that we can take as the church. If it is true that the Spirit of God empowers his people for their mission, and here we see a picture of God's man who's been given the Spirit to accomplish God's mission and what he does with it, is to serve and bring blessing to one who does not deserve it. In fact, he's rejected God and he's going down a bad path. I think one of the things that we need to take away from this is that God's people, us, you, me, should be known by our willingness to serve, even in a place that is maybe not the thing that we are most known for, and that our blessing that we should be known by the blessing of our spirit-filled presence in a world that's struggling to do it all on their own. These are unique characters. What happened to Saul is unique. What happened to David is unique. But there is a character archetype that exists all over the world that fill both of these roles. And I would say Saul's is the person who's in over their head who's trying to hold it all together, who's trying to make sense of the world, who's trying to do more than they're capable of doing, who's trying to present bravado and trying to act as if they have everything together, but deep down in their heart, they're paranoid, they're anxious, they're overwhelmed. Do you know these people? Are you that person sometimes? I think that person is all over the place. I also think that if you're a person who follows Jesus, who's given yourself to him, then you are a spirit-filled blessing called to serve and bring that spirit-filled presence to bring a real concrete blessing into those places in the world. Maybe that's your job. Maybe that's your neighborhood. Maybe that's your family. Maybe that's your marriage. The reality is that the call on God's people is not just to be heroes who are running out in front all the time. David will have that moment in his life. It will come. But right here at the beginning of his story, it doesn't look anything like that. It looks like he's the youngest, the smallest, the one who has the least accreditation, and he's called into service into someone that I think you can make a pretty strong argument didn't deserve service. He had rejected God, he'd been disobedient. David does not do that. David comes in with service, with love. He comes in to bring blessing that is filled with the Spirit and Saul feels it. Saul responds. Saul is soothed by this moment. Is that the presence that we bring when we interact in the world? When people interact with you, do they say, man, I don't know what that was, but it sure made me feel better. It sure felt like blessing to me. It sure felt like things were better when I was in their presence than when I wasn't. Because I'm telling you, if that is true, it's because you brought the Spirit of God into their presence in a place that desperately needs it. And that's what David is doing here. David is being faithful with the little things that he's given. And Saul is going to increasingly tailspin out of control. And we're gonna kind of see this interplay over the next few weeks as we're going through this series. Let's pray that God would help us to be a people who bring blessing and the Spirit, and then the band can come. God, thank you so much for the stories that we receive here in 1 Samuel, the story of Saul and what it looks like to be overwhelmed and be attempting to do something that feels impossible on our own. God, thank you for David, the one who stands out for being unique and brings blessing where he goes, God. I pray that we can be those kind of people—people people that are different, people that are unique, people that are odd but winsome. People that, when our neighbors and our coworkers encounter us, they're almost annoyed about how much they like being around us. God, I I want to be those kind of people. I wanna be people that are known by bringing the blessing of their spirit-filled presence into the middle of a world that's struggling to do it all on our own because that blessing brings opportunity to speak about the goodness of our King Jesus who we love. God, we pray this in his name, amen.